Welcome to the Sub Pop Cult Podcast. I'm your host, Michael McGruther. It's a new year and a new beginning, and also the second chapter in the new narrative, the story that's about you and me and the things that matter to small town life and to everyday Americans. What we're going to do is turn the culture upside down. And part of that, part of that trick is understanding how it got in the position it got into in the first place. Today, I have a very special guest, someone who has a lot to offer. This is the longest episode of my podcast that I've ever recorded. I try to keep them short intentionally just to get the point across to you. But today's different. It's a little over an hour and a half because the conversation is with with Mr. Ross Kennedy, who you know is man integrated. He's a logistics expert. He's also a human nature observer, and he understands the game that's being played in the same capacity that I do. And he understands it in a way that is at a high level and explained scientifically in this podcast. We talk about a concept that is very important for you to understand called data normalization. Now, if you've heard this podcast before, you've heard me talk about how data is generated by reactions and how people are deployed to befuddle the right and befuddle the competition from ever taking the power from the left by getting behaviors into the public eye that generate data that can then be normalized. Ross explains data normalization really well in this podcast, and we spent a few minutes on it. But it's the thing I would ask you to really dwell on after this episode is what data are you providing to the system can then be normalized against you. Perfect example is when the right is called xenophobic or racist. There's data that backs it up because it has been generated intentionally by handpicking rotten individuals and putting them front and center as if they represent us all. So let's get right to this episode, right to this year, right to the mission. Mr. Ross Kennedy is on Sub Pop Cult dropping some truth bombs. Please stay tuned, and at the end, there's a song that I can't even believe existed, but I found it, and it's perfect. Don't get turned off by it. Listen to the whole song. It attacks both sides. So Ross, it is uh, it is an honor, and it's very cool to have you on my little grassroots podcast because you're you're one of my big supporters. Who, when you tweet something of mine, um, you give me a lot of attention and you bring a lot of notice to to what I'm doing. And I really appreciate that. And uh, and you're a straight shooter, and your your mind is like a computer. I've noticed from from just interacting with you and talking to you, you process data in a different way than most of us do, and that gives you some insight into the nature of systems and the system that you also know a lot about because I've read a lot of your heartfelt threads about fatherhood and leadership and things that you can only know from doing them. Uh, You also have a lot of observations about the culture, which is something that is how we became friends. Uh, um, It's my concern as well. And and I look at you as, as one of those great assets that can help us maybe steer this ship uh, out of its its harbor of bullshit and and into a place where the right has to participate in the formation of where this country is going to go culturally. So 
with that being the reality and how we met, let's let's dive into something recent and big that happened, if you don't mind, which is Not this sure. this character, Roman McClay, who I don't really know anything about him except through you and the controversy online. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's a business model that exists where like Joe Rogan does the legit version of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here's a book on how to be a, a better person, how to how to lift weights, how to eat. And then all these kind of like identical copies form. And I feel like McClay fits into that. Am I accurate to say that he's one of those kind of like echoes of the Joe Rogan style? Yeah. And, and just so I guess it doesn't confuse people who may be listening on, on who Roman McClay is. Um, he, he was, he was Roman McClay as his, um, well, there's levels, right? You have like a nom de plume, which is just the, the name you hide behind when you write, you have a nom de guerre, which is sort of the identity that you take on. But, but, the identity of Roman McClay was something a little bit more and, and one of a few identities that Lyndon McLeod had. And, um, that name, Lyndon McLeod's probably a little more familiar, I guess, to a, a general audience who may hear this, um, because it was the individual that, uh, broke bad here, you know, I guess a couple weeks ago now. And, and, uh, you know, took five lives uh, there in Denver and over a few hours. And, um, my, you know, I've laid somewhat low online as far as my connections to to Lyndon or, or Roman as he was known to most people. Um, in fact, he jealously guarded uh, his real name uh, in some ways, but also had that that odd quirk of wanting to be more clever than his audience or his perceived audience. Um, so, how you see uh, other other killers. Uh, throughout history have had the calling wanting to leave the calling card wanting to leave a mystery for people to unravel as far as who he was Lyndon very much had that and so he wanted people at some level to figure out who roman mcclay was he wanted people to read his books and to dive into what he perceived to be the the genius mystery uh, of his own intellect and and i will say this uh, very bluntly is that Lyndon was, was in fact a genius of, of, of a particular variety. He really was. Um, and I'm not going to speak well of him for what he did, but I do understand the magic and the way in which he was able to captivate a lot of people. Well, a lot of people, right? Very much so. Right. And, and so what was interesting was, and what I still wrestle with a little bit was the chicken and the egg of Lyndon McLeod. And he, he, his book, which I'm not going to say the name of simply because I don't want to promote it, but his book was, uh, in, in some ways, a uh, astonishing work of black pill genius in the sense of really understanding and then putting with this very overwrought but still somewhat significant prose, putting to word a lot of the angst and the anger and and the feelings that a certain sub subset of american society in particular feels at being marginalized for unfairly um being attacked and derided unfairly by the culture right by the cultural tastemakers and i would say that his story and your story that's that's basically where they meet and diverge at the same time is holding beliefs that are uh, too 
too alien or too uncomfortable for the cultural tastemakers. Um, but there was nothing ethical about his. It was it was an angry, rage-filled desire, I think, to harm a world that he perceived had harmed him far more greatly. He turned that and, into a business. I mean, he turned that right. into a, a movement, a business, and he impacted people. And by his effort, he spread his his disaster to other people. That's right. And it's an, it's interesting that we you know we live in a world of memes, Mike. Right. And you know, before before memes kind of became like the word du jour on on the right over the last I'd say maybe decade, um, the CIA has had an institute. Uh, for memetic research going back to at least the 80s and and that that to my knowledge is really the origin of the of, of the term meme or memetic um, uh, behavior and, and mental modification is and, and as, as we both know that type of research whatever its name is goes back decades prior to that um, but what we've seen in, in Lyndon McLeod and in others is a synthesis of understanding being enacted in the digital world and in the real world of manipulating people's emotions and manipulating the facts that they perceive and also how they perceive them to generate a specific output. And this is where it gets really interesting and it's something you and I have talked a little bit about before. Uh, which is which is the Hegelian dialectic, right? And that and that comes from Hegel, the the philosopher who uh, the di- you know any dialectic is is presenting two extremes: the the thesis and the antithesis, and then the the philosophical endpoint is to find the resolution or the synthesis of the two. And that's where the word synthesis comes from: is thesis, antithesis, antithesis, and synthesis. And but what the CIA discovered and what other uh, good and bad actors have discovered and, and learned over the years is that the Hegelian dialectic, really starting with the Frankfurt School, there is a pattern of weaponization that occurs when you take the Hegelian dialectic out of the realm of uh, philosophical inquiry and turn it into a weapon of cultural influence. And the Frankfurt School, which was, uh, you know, a, a group of outright Marxists, and then they became crypto Marxists, but they had to go underground. But the Frankfurt School in Germany in the 20s and 30s, and then uh, some of the individuals that came out of like the Italian communist and fascist tradition, um, Evola being one who continues really to, to resonate today and, and comes into the story later. Uh, but Julius Evola, uh, and I'm probably saying that wrong, but whatever, I'm not a, I'm not a PhD candidate, so I don't really give a shit, but... Um, but anyway, that individual and then Rene Gagnon and, and some of the others, what you see there is the, 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 the tool of philosophical inquiry that is the Hegelian dialectic being turned into something where the, the model becomes almost inverted, where you start with an, a thesis or an idea or, or, a, you know, um, uh, a way of looking at the world. And then you say, okay, well, what's the total opposite of this, right? And then let's move these two positions towards the middle to try to find truth, which is where, where it's a tool of philosophical and intellectual inquiry. What the Frankfurt School realized is, is that thesis, antithesis, and synthesis can be very easily turned into problem, reaction, solution. And once you take problem, reaction, solution, uh, 
and you say, okay, well, let's reframe thesis as what's the problem we're trying to resolve. Let's reframe antithesis as the solution that we're trying to get to, um, or excuse me, let's reframe synthesis as the solution. Let's reframe antithesis as the reaction we're trying to generate. Now you've turned that model a little bit on itself, and that's the that's what I've called numerous times online the weaponized Hegelian dialectic. And some of the current influencer class and uh, sort of mimetic masters of the cultural right that that currently occupy a position of fairly substantial influence both in the news and in all, you know alternative and right wing media. Um, they really do understand this, which is that um, the desired end state is X. And so we can work backwards from that desired end state to how do we create a problem? How do we craft and incept that problem in such a way that it triggers a specified reactionary response that moves us closer to the synthesis or the desirable outcome? And so when we take it back to what Linda McLeod was attempting to do, um, I read all of the first of, you know, of, of his book, I almost said it. And uh, I would have made you bleep that later. Like I was saying, yeah, the swear word. Let, let me interject, <laughs> let me interject something right there because I just want to get inside your, your, your brain here for a second. Uh, you, you know, a lot of influencers are using this method, which you just, mm-hmm. elo- you just eloquently described uh, a very complicated thing, which I just call the juxt- the art of juxtaposition. That's right. And, and they're doing this and they know they're doing it. And it's obvious because we know Mm -hmm. they're doing it. So it's clear if you have the understanding of the trick, you can see that it's being done deliberately. Now, do you believe that there is an understanding or an awareness that they're doing it to gather data, to generate data through those reactions that maintains a certain political order? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so without getting too far out into the weeds of some of my experience and, and relationships and things I've worked on in the past, um, the use of data to, to understand, I'll take it all the way back. So there, there's a model that certain segments of the intelligence community and the military community use for targeting. And targeting is simply identifying a specific thing of interest and then trying to figure out, well, what are we going to do in response to this? And it could be good. It could be bad. Uh, It's ambivalent, right? Because it's a very data-driven process and you take all the data and then you apply an analytical framework to it. So the one that's somewhat familiar to the public is F3 EAD or find, fix, finish, exploit, analyze, and disseminate. So find, fix, finish, or F3 is how do we is 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 resolved with how do we identify a target of entrance and that's the fine part fixes how do we fix it in a specific given time and place um so it's usually preoccupied with a specific asset or an individual uh, a thing that can only exist in one moment in one place at one time and that's that's called fixing which is fixing it in a specific time and place and then finish which you know in most cases typically means exactly what it sounds like it would mean in that context or a military, you know, a military or an intelligence context. Um, and then exploit, analyze and disseminate is describe whatever intelligence you can, uh, during that finish phase and immediately following, uh, grab all that data, analyze it, and then disseminate it out to any stakeholders who need to understand what you learned from that, from that operation or from that, 
you know, from the process of fine fixing and finishing that target. So when you take that and, and you, you, you understand that there are people who have an intelligence background that are now involved in political influence operations from a civilian side, from a non-governmental side, they're taking skill sets that they learned inside the, the puzzle palace that is, you know, uh, uh, that weird mix of defense and intel and politics. And they're applying them to monetizable and political goals inside the civilian and political sphere. And so when you take uh, the, the tools of mimetic management, uh, inception, creating and, and, and modifying ideas, you can start to weaponize and manipulate uh, data. You can create mm-hmm. data by moving people to action, by putting an environment or a, uh, a, a playground or a sandbox is a term I use a lot, um, you know, where people let their imaginations roam and they think they're safe and they create these things. Well, the observation of people creating things and of moving and of doing teaches you everything you need to know about them. And that process is called activity-based intelligence. So activity-based intelligence is nothing more complicated than the fact that Google tracks you. Mm-hmm. The, the microphones on an Android phone or the microphones on an iPhone listen to you persistently. And so it picks up keywords. It's, it's parsing and filtering everything you're saying. Uh, it's overlaying what you're saying with when you say it and how you say it. And so if I talk about for a time about, yeah, I'm on my way to work, and I say that three times in front of my phone, and then I end up, I, my phone stops at the same address at the same time every day. The phone, the, the system learns that work is that address I stopped at or is likely to be that. And then it'll flash me an alert. Do you want to set this as your work address? Yeah. Right. We can help you navigate. That's activity-based intelligence, right? That's activity-based intelligence applied in the commercial sphere. But at the end of the day, it's about gathering data. It's about analyzing and detecting patterns in that data. And then ultimately, it's about how do we exploit those patterns to push those individuals in ways knowing and unknowing into behaviors that benefit the people who control the data. So, Cass, you know, Sunstein... Well, they control the, they control the system that runs on the data that That's they right. collect. You That's know, right. Because, because they go out and manufacture this data that is disingenuous and doesn't really mm-hmm. reflect the true nature of what life is like in America in the year 2021. But it does reflect the result that the data miners want it to so they can get that. And I think that's my gripe with people like Jack Posobiec and uh, Mike Cernovich and all these characters that are the forward-facing personalities in the party of the people. I mean, I'm a small-town guy. I grew up as a Republican, blue-collar parents, railroad family. You know, those are real Republicans, in my opinion. But we always get stuck with these... Uh, corporate-looking data misers who are playing these voodoo tricks on us, which, mm-hmm. you know, just to, in plain English, is despicable in my opinion, and uh, and it needs to be exposed. So, you know, this knowledge you're dropping is is a little intense even for me because it's it's multi-layered <laughs> and it's stuff I got, you know, and I I can go that way, but uh, I'm trying to think, you know, how to keep it a little bit more simple for some of the artists that might listen to this. That are trying to get it. They're trying to get an understanding of how their data is used against them to reduce their freedom and to reduce their, uh, you know, to exploit the vulnerabilities to make us have fights with each other that we normally wouldn't have. Um, mm-hmm. I've said it before on this podcast that and nobody in real life acts like they do 
online, except you know probably you and a few other folks. But the most outrageous people, that's that's uh, that guy. You know, is a normal person or a girl or whoever when they walk out the door. So it's all just a big show, and a lot of those people are generating reactions to give them that data to use against us. Well, there's there's a nice example, and 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 it's it's occurring in real time right now, Mike. Of what you're talking about, where um, certain things that are crafted, and 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 I debated if I'm going to do this, and I really don't care because it's not like I have a grift that can be canceled or whatever. Like I'm just right. a, like I'm, I'm like a normal dude who operates in the real world, and and I speak from experience and intelligence, and it's it's hard to cancel a guy like me if only because I don't really give a shit what happens on my Twitter account. Yeah, there's um, no it, there's it, no canceling. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I don't make my money from being a smart guy on Twitter. Uh, it's been a great source of relationships and opportunity um, and, and meeting some amazing people like yourself. Um, but it's also not my bread and butter, right? I don't, I don't rely on it. So that makes me very difficult to compromise by saying, well, we'll, we'll, we'll show on Twitter that you've done business in China. Well, how the, how the hell do you think I know how business in China works if I haven't been doing business there for a decade and a half? Right. There's nobody who hasn't done business in China. <laughs> just right. by, by mean, nature of just going to the store and buying anything in the past 25 years, you've done business with China. The question is, when they hold people to these ridiculous extremes, they prevent mm -hmm. us from forcing them into a real conversation about how do we solve the problem, right? And, mm -hmm. and you know, it, a lot of my stuff is from Amazon that's in my house, but I try to buy American when I can. But we have to grow mm -hmm. that. We have to grow that reality to be more important to a larger number of us than, you know, and, and the corporate system is loud because it deploys all these uh, chaos operators to prevent us from really staying focused long enough to accept it as a reality that it's probably our duty to search in a different place when we buy things and, and try to, you know, repair some of the damage that's been done by politics. So mm -hmm. by just by a million paper cuts of distraction, they prevent that moment from ever happening in it. It really pisses me off. Well, it's, it's you know, the interesting thing here is, and, and most people don't look more than a layer deep. Like right now we've seen a, a small but concerted effort amongst that constituency to tie, um, you know, Lyndon McLeod slash Roman McClay, which was his nom de guerre online and nom de plume with his book. Um, we've seen a very concerted effort to tie him as someone who expressed some pretty significant white nationalist tendencies, particularly later in his work um, as someone who expressed some really deviant tendencies, uh, you know, somewhat frequently, uh, but then to connect him and say, okay, well, he's indicative of what the larger right wing is because look at Charlottesville and look at Trump and look at all these things. And so it's a very tenuous connection between Lyndon McLeod and the right at scale. What's not a tenuous connection, though, is that if you look at who unbidden almost were going out of their way to connect Lyndon McLeod to being an FBI operative or to in some way try to m deflect and make this about the sins of the Fed, uh, of which there are a billion, right? Like I'm not going to be the, I, I will not apologize for any any stupid shit they've ever done. Um, but I will say that, that in this case, it's the, you know, me, me thinks he doth protest too much thing. 
And the reality of the situation is, and I know this because before he personally told me he was going to kill me for things I said to him and things I did to stop him from some of the more uh, ridiculous shenanigans, you know, he was up to on social media. Uh, Lyndon McLeod and others were telling me about how uh, specific individuals, a lot of them adjacent to Steve Bannon, were really loved his book and really loved his presence and loved what he had to say and loved his sort of, uh, uh, you know, return to tradition mindset of things and traditionalism. And then, and I always thought that was curious, right? Like you're talking about a guy who's, you know, heavily tattooed, who's expressed some really violent and antisocial tendencies, but was nonetheless a very intriguing and interesting artist. Um, and and it, it was odd to me. And, and there's a whole story here. We can get into it if you want, but um, around. Well, I mean, the middle- bl- you know, Bannon's like a slimy master mastermind. Uh, I mean, look at him. He looks like an evil mastermind with his belly sticking out of his shirt. <laughs> And the way he looks like a mess and, you know, to have all this power, he's like a tabloid guy. I don't have any allegiance to Bannon or anything. My only allegiance is kind of like yours. As a matter of fact, I know it's like yours. My allegiance is to the American people that are my neighbors. That's who my allegiance is to. So I don't give a shit. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the real deal. That's what keeps this whole thing. That's what keeps the Bannons of the world on our side and the insane flamethrowers on the other side to get $100 million from from the founder of Amazon just for being a you know professional victim on, on cable news for a decade. Uh, <laughs> I mean, those people are eating us alive. They're eating us regular Americans alive. So that, that whole thing with Bannon is he's like, he created Milo, which at the time I really enjoyed because as a writer, I recognized it was a dramatic plot twist characterization. You know, mm-hmm. get, it was hitting the left right in their own target. And I appreciated that Steve Bannon effort. And, and then I saw how that kind of got taken away. And, and then I realized there's something, something's off here, you know? And so mm-hmm. when you tell me that they all rallied around this, this other vile character, it's because it serves the purpose. It, it bastardizes the true message, but it delivers it in a, in a flaming hot fireball that spreads like fire so that it will never actually catch on and feed the real people who actually value that message, which are normal people. So they go find somebody and they elevate him so that he will rock the plot in a way, but it's all designed so that that never takes root ever. That's a that, that, and that's exactly it. And you've had, um, because you understand culture and I, and I think Mike, probably more than anybody you embody, uh, probably the thing Breitbart, Andrew Breitbart is most famous for saying which is that politics is downstream of culture. And I think you grasp that and understand that in a, in a way where he was someone who, and, and, and I don't want to speak out of turn for you here, but he was someone who I think you understood in a very intimate and personal way, um, knew what he was talking about from the inside, from an insider's perspective, who I think had flipped and said this this whole thing is screwed up you know we have to fix this it's gone too far and and became a bit of a culture warrior and and i agree with him that politics is downstream of culture but where i think where i think breitbart world lost its way after after andrew's death 
was the belief that the highest and best use of the platform that Breitbart had built was to win the political battle and then influence culture from 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 reverse. And that was and and again, basically, look, basically the left's power. That's to, right. To that's grab right. the left's power from the top instead of taking them from the bottom, which is the that's, right way. That's exactly right. And the when when you are and and that was that was probably Steve Bannon's greatest miscalculation because I think he was the first to take over as like the sort of the honcho at at Breitbart following Andrew's death. Um, and, and I could be wrong about that. I mean, I'm wrong about like. 99. No, I mean, I don't even think it's a miscalculation. I have a different look about it because I, you know, I did go and I saw, I saw this start from the beginning, and I did go to Andrew's house, and ironically, his house overlooked a cemetery in Brentwood, and. Oh, yeah, and we went we went out onto his back porch one day, and he's like, "Let's go outside and get some fresh air." And he had like this tennis court extended off of his off of his kitchen. You could walk right out; it was elevated, but it overlooked the cemetery. And the first thing I said when we walked out there was, "That's where they bury all the Republicans, right?" And uh, you know, we both we both laughed about that. But I think he was true and he was genuine. But what happened is, and I'm not, I'm not pulling punches here i'm not making anything up i sincerely believe this there's an evil worldly force that invades and infects everything that has to do with show business and power mm -hmm. and money and i saw it get a hold of him and turn him into an anxiety ridden the last time i saw him he was anxiety ridden it was Mark Levin was speaking at the Ronald Reagan Library, and I flew out because I loved Mark Levin's really practical book about mm -hmm. the true meaning of the word liberal, to be free, Iber, right? You know, it was like, mm -hmm. like this, this message is the one that you need to stay focused on in the Republican Party, but they're monetized in a different direction. So anyway, Andrew was anxiety-ridden at this point. His business was being ripped apart. Fame was being pumped upon him. He had that book, Righteous Indignation, and you could just see, like, it's like, look at Jeff Bezos. This is the perfect example. Look at the picture that went viral of him with his girlfriend where he's dressed like he's been buff, pumping weights. You know, that guy never got laid once in his life until he became a billionaire, and now he's just trying to go out and, like, live that dog life that he never, never got when he was younger. That thing that they do to people, that's a trick that the world, that the culture actually mm -hmm. does. And it doesn't matter how rich or powerful you are. If you have that weakness, it can get you. And I saw it and I experienced it by myself, even a very micro, tiny, tiny, tiny way. But I learned to steel myself against it. And that's why I think the only way to really undo this calamity of egos is to really like repossess, to occupy the street, uh, 1960s style, but from a position of individual liberty which is again 1960s style but it's all about that small government that we really really want mm -hmm. these guys don't want it they just want to run the big government the same way the democrats do they don't want to have the government be of of service to us people and and it's really it's like mission critical at this point because uh they've they've established themselves as our voice and it's it's disingenuous and false i think what's interesting is is that when you when you look at um, and I don't care what whitewashed, you know, Twitter feeds and everything. In this particular case, the data is not the truth because it's easy to um, it's easy to hide a story. 
right? But when you look at, at the fact that, and, and this is a case that I can pretty coherently lay out, I figured out fairly quickly, and it was around about June 2019, um, what was going on with the organization and weaponization of specifically what we, what you might call uh, the manosphere on Twitter or what the early 2000s, you know, late 90s, early 2000s men's rights movement then gave rise to sort of the pickup artist movement, which was... Uh, you know, Roycey and Roosh and Rolo Tomasi and a lot of these guys. And then, uh, but at some point, around about 2018 to 2019, it began to bifurcate. And you had the Manosphere who, you had the part of it that tried to stay true to it, so what they call the red pill roots or where they, they, they take their cues essentially from the, the Matrix, which it's hilarious at what, at what the creators of the Matrix have become in light of the fact that they right. you know, were the progenitors of the, uh, of the red pill. Well, um, another victim, spring. another victim of the demons of worldliness is, uh, Lana Wachowski. I mean, that's, that's one of the finish it's, lines it's you heart, end up at. That's, that's worldliness. It is, it is worldliness and, and it's heartbreaking, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, when you, when you look at the level of philosophical and depth of genius that the then Wachowski brothers were operating on, in 1998, 1999, when they were making and writing and directing and, and producing The Matrix, you're talking about one of the most brilliant inceptions of very high-minded philosophy that's ever been uh, pushed into popular cinema. It's really something incredible to, to the extent that a large part of how a lot of men see themselves is through that red pill, blue pill sort of framework, right? So you had that red pill framework, and for a long time, it was a very unified sort of coalition where it's it's uh, it's us men who see the truth against the the uh, you know uh, you know misandry you know misandry of the world or anti male um, the uh, gynocentric you know female focused view of the world, and and that was a very unified coalition for a long time uh, from you know, but it was sort of the quiet part out loud to say that right. And so they found a home on, on, on the internet and on Twitter and on the various forums. And then around about um, in the early part of 2019, and this is where it starts to get interesting on the naming name standpoint, you had 21 con uh, Anthony Johnson, who was the um, uh, sort of the, the guy who was like 18 or 19 years old. I think he organized like the first conference, uh, the first 21 con conference. And the idea was to bring, uh, the guys from like Red Pill Twitter, Red Pill Reddit, some of these other things together in a real world way and start to try to connect uh, in, in, in real life. Uh, like a me FW. <laughs> that, that's it, man. Right. Like a meetup. And uh, all right. So we're all these people that have been saying all this stuff online. Let's let's meet up together and try to make something real. And, and I understand the impetus for that. I right? get that right. So. Uh, but over time, what that sort of what that sort of became was its own form of um, uh, financial opportunity for a lot yeah. of the people involved in it. You know, you get paid a certain amount to speak, and you get to travel to some place and speak for free. And then a bunch of dudes who have had some real issues and challenges in their life think, okay, well, this is this is my red pill. This is my way out. And I, if I follow and adopt these best practices. Um, I can make myself immune to these sort of the machinations of a gynocentric world. And, uh, but I see the truth. I understand. And so we can do this. And, and into that void in 2019 stepped, I feel, 
and it'll probably never be proven publicly, but this is my own sense from being someone who's really largely inside of it at that time in a lot of ways, uh, but also someone who's a very vocal critic of it from the very beginning. So adjacent to, inside of, and also an enemy of in a lot of ways. Um, the, the, the red pillar of the men's rights movement, which was, um, I begin to feel a more political shift in the tone of a lot of the authors and speakers and peoples that were part of these conferences and whatever. Is Gavin McGinnis a part of this? So Gavin McGinnis is an interesting guy, right? Like Gavin McGinnis was like a founder of the Proud Boys and he was like sort of an out and out culture warrior and in a lot of ways that. And he's Canadian. That's, that's right. Which was, which is interesting. Um, Let's just well, get it out right now that we have a lot of bullshit foreigners that come to here and stir the pot. We got Steve Bannon giving boat rides to the Chinese communist spy and selling him everybody's data. We've got guys like McGinnis who pop down from Canada to just raise hell. Like, when are we going to push back as Americans and tell all these people to get the fuck out of here and go mind their own business so that we can restore our country? When we don't feel ashamed that we're the cultural and political and economic epicenter of most things that happen in the world. And, 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 and I think that's a big part of it. And, and, and that was where the, the Lyndon McLeod thing was super interesting to me because this guy just burst onto the scene in late 2018 and uh, saying the quiet parts out loud about what all of, you know, he held some really uncomfortable opinions and then he held other opinions that to people made sense in the same way today we could read uh, the communist manifesto, or, or not, excuse me, but we could read Ted Kaczynski's manifesto, the Unabomber manifesto. And be like, I don't know, man, maybe the Luddites are like 10% right about things. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, always a little bit of, of that's right. you know, there's that's always right. a little bit of truth to all that insanity. If you divorce some of the things that Jim Jones said early on, and 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 for God's sakes, I'm not apologizing for any of these monsters. So just No, you're being reasonable. Out. There's things that people say that are true. They they turn right. insane and they act on them. That's the weird part. But but this, yeah, this comes back to understanding the psychology of human nature, right? And at a certain point, if you, if, you, if you sense what the cultural moment is and you radicalize it to the most extreme, you're still going to attract a fairly significant number of people simply by the fact that people feel marginalized when a, a cultural shift happens too far one way or the other. And where, where the current right, particularly the group, I would say the, the coalition, coalition of interest that, that have been kind of organized by, by Steve Bannon and other players. Um, and, and sort of became, I think the ascendant force really in, in current right-wing culture. Uh, and where a guy like Lyndon McLeod plays into it is, is that you have to capture a large enough coalition to move the needle politically. That's votes. That's, um, taste making that's donations. And so the only way to get people to really donate in a political culture and the United States is nothing if not a corporatized political culture, uh, in this current moment in time, um, is to make them feel a, and this is thesis, there's something wrong. And the antithesis of, well, if this is what's wrong, here's who's to blame for it. And then the synthesis of, uh, well, if this is what's wrong and this is who's to blame for it, this is the obvious solution, right? So you got problem, reaction, solution. The obvious Before solution me, is buy my book and t-shirt. <laughs> that's right. That's the monetizable solution, right? right. Or in the case of, you know, like a, a guy like Mike Lindell, like, you know, buy my pillows. And it's like, for the record, 
uh, and I've said this publicly, so it's not like I'm dragging anybody here in a way I haven't done before. Mike Lindell's pillows are made, are in fact made in Minnesota. They are really good pillows. There's like one on my bed right now. I got it as a gift a few years ago, and I, I yeah, he's a he's a big out. sponsor of my favorite radio show, Bernie and Sid, uh, Sid That's Rosenberg right. and Bernard McGurk. I mean, he's on all the time. That's right, and and so you know, Mike Lindell, I think in a lot of ways is a very legitimate guy who really does love America and is putting his money in what he thinks and applying it to the best and highest use for what's good for America. I believe that, but I think hey, in this I'm case, not shitting you when I tell you this. If the left keeps pissing off normal Americans, they're going to have to answer to a president, Mike Lindell, one day, and I'm not messing around. That That is exactly right. And what's interesting is this, though. If you, if you get him, if someone put me in a room with Mike Lindell and just started recording and I started asking him questions about a supply chain, because that's, that's sort of my expertise is the intersection of supply chain and how humans interact with things they need and want which culture is very much what drives those decisions in, in many, many ways. Well, the, um, map of, the map of human intent, as you've told me many times before, and I so, always laugh, I always get a chuckle, because you know, you know that there's a boat out there that's full of dildos. Like, mm-hmm. that, cracks me, that cracks me up. There's like 10,000 uh, dildos on a boat waiting to get out. You know, I've never told the story publicly, but I'll, I'll tell it since you brought it <laughs> up. Um, the first, the first uh, shipment I ever moved... As a freight middleman, like a freight forwarder in NVOCC, the first shipment I ever moved was a 20-foot container. Uh, I was like my fifth day on the job, I think, at that particular company. And I'm not going to slander that particular company. That it's, you know, they were fine to me and all that. But, you know, it, it, was a, it was very much an eye-opening sort of experience for me a number of years ago. And I remember, I remember looking at the packing list and the commercial invoice and this container was being exported from, from, uh, you know, I think it was going out of the port of Long. It was Los Angeles or Long Beach. It was Southern California and it was being exported. And I was looking in. And so what I was trying to put together was the pricing on what's it going to cost to move this thing from the warehouse where it's being loaded to the port, get it on a ship, get it overseas, et cetera. And I, I remember looking at the packing list and the commercial invoice and it was, four 55 gallon drums on a pallet uh, of, of, of personal lubricant, right? <laughs> Whatever is personal lubricant was, was, was the term that was on the packing list. Uh, it was boxes. I mean, boxes after boxes after buying 20 foot containers, 33 cubic meters. So if you think a, a meter by a meter by a meter, like length, width and height, 33 of those in this container, probably two thirds of it was boxes full of, uh, you know, pornographic DVDs and pornographic, um, uh, magazines. And then there was boxes after boxes, after boxes, after boxes of, of, uh, uh various, uh, adult toys and things like that. And, uh, and, and then you had this one pallet that had 220 gallons of personal lubricant on it. And it was all going to Shanghai, China. Oh my and, God. I mean, look, this is, this is the human race. This is the human race. Just imagine fast forward into the future and you've got your space elevator lift and your operation. Like you're loading this onto a, uh, you know, a, 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 a rig to go to the moon. I mean, this is, how can you ever take anything seriously again after that day? I, I, I was, I was just laughing so hard, but that, that really uh, over time, I'd say over the weeks that followed, I, I like it, it didn't cause an existential crisis, but it was so out there. 
as a first experience doing that particular type of work where I'm like the middleman moving somebody's, I, I have no beneficial interest in the freight being moved. So I didn't know what it was until it had to be moved. It was already in the container. And then you mean nobody, you mean they didn't do that to you on purpose as the new guy. They're like, no, oh, Hey, the Wang, Dong, the Wang Dong boats coming in, send <laughs> Ross over. It was totally random and, and sort of funny that we were sending back like made in China sex toys back to China. But um, it, it was interesting in the sense of I, I realized I'm like, man, and I already knew this because I was I had already been shipping for a number of years, agriculture, food, feed, energy products, all that sort of stuff that really met basic human needs. So I was already working on that thesis of like logistics as a map of human intent. But when I when I shipped a full container of sex toys to China and I'm like, man, the, the amount of people whose, whose needs such as they are, are going to be met by that one container. It, it really clarified for me that the, the, the trade of things and the way in which we move things and how we move things reveals an awful lot mm-hmm. about society reveals an awful lot about culture reveals an awful lot about business uh, and, and political intentions and all of that. So as, as goofy as that m- story is a little bit, it was a moment for, of clarity for me that at the end of the day, humans in a lot of ways, we are still um, like, I don't want to say animals because that's almost like very nihilistic, but we are still creatures that are driven a lot by uh, the, the synthesis of our id, ego, and superego, as Freud would have put it. Um, but we have basic needs, right? At, at the very bottom level, we need to eat, we need to procreate, we need to sleep, we need to have water, things like that. Uh, we're driven by the middle tier needs, which is sort of like, okay, you know, how do I get along with people I like? And how do I have people get along with me and tribal considerations? And you have like the super ego needs, which are, you know, like, how do I leave a legacy? And how do I, how do I create a philosophy that endures for a thousand years and all of that? And it's some combination of all of those things that drive us and, and so me shipping a container full of, you know, porn and sex toys and lube, uh, was a moment for me where I began to connect those knots. Right. And that moment was no different than, uh, the first time I had to ship a container full of like ammunition and explosives. Um, and I learned about the real politic of the world when a certain country that's under sanctions, uh, with the United States and I'm shipping a container of product, from a sanctioned country to the United States full of things that are sanctioned, hmm. but because a certain group needed it, really needed it for their own purposes, I had to find that loophole. And it was an incumbent upon me to find that logistics loophole to get it here the way it needed to be. And when you connect that back to culture, what you realize is, is that um, the rules are only the rules for a certain subset of people. And for everybody That's else, right. they're, just a, they're just a framework uh, to, to manipulate within and manipulate without. And when we're talking about an individual, whether it's a Linda McLeod or whether it's a Steve Bannon or whether it's a Jack Posobiec or anything, you know, Mike Cernovich or anything like that, the vast majority of people who have made it their mission to create cultural taste, to determine the, the framework of what's acceptable culture and what is good and proper and decent, to determine what moves the needle politically in a way that benefits their particular faction, you realize that there is no ethics, really, to the process. It's all in pursuit of winning. It's all in pursuit of getting more donations than the other guy. It's all pursuit of electing more officials than the other guy. They, they can follow a prescribed path of interest. 
And so it almost jades me a little bit that guys like you and I um, are outliers in a bit. And, and, and by the way, like I'm not ethical. Like I, I, I have behaved in so many ways in my life with just extreme moral and ethical cowardice. I'm not, I'm not ethical either, but these guys, they, they try to <laughs> cultivate, they try to cultivate, uh, you know, what I, what I rail against, which is ideological purity because it's something that they can manage. It's like a typical manipulative relationship. They cultivate right. the right qualities in you so that they can press all your buttons. And, you know, in this, in this, you know, taking it to another level in this world of, of, uh, uh being watched all the time and having our data collected, the only way to subvert the system is to not make any sense to the system. Um, and you can't exactly make sense right. to the system. You can't make sense to the system. If you're truly an American citizen who behaves as if you really do have freedom, but you will make perfect sense to the system and you will feed it data 24 seven. If you follow these Shylocks mm-hmm. who cultivated you extreme values. So, you know, I, I, t- I talk to people on the phone that I share values with a, pretty well-known actor and I, we have this close relationship. We talk to each other a lot. And I'm like, listen, I know you could go to like the most liberal part of LA and, and just like hang out with the weirdest people. You could have a drink with some people. You could smoke a bowl. You could go home. You're still, you still love your wife. You're still going to go to church on Sunday. You're still going to vote the way you're going to vote. So why, why are we going to allow these people to uh, push us into all these different rooms, which only prevents them from ever being displaced by us? Because we're manageable in that perspective, right? Data, if nothing else, and and one of the things about data that people don't really understand is that the the weirdest thing about data is not generating data, it's not interpreting data, it's data normalization. It's getting all of the elements in a data set into, into a format that is coherent to everything else in the data set. And so... If I'll use an example from my own world. So a lot of the things I ship are measured in metric tons, right? Which is 2,204.64, I think. So where, where we look at from a cultural standpoint of, you know, the, 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 the taste making and all of that, all of that is in pursuit of data normalization. All of that is in pursuit. And like I said, in my world, it's metric tons, right? It's it's 2,200 pound units packaged inside of a super sack or a tote, uh, which is basically a four foot by four foot by four foot, you know, length, length, and height uh, polyethylene bag that's got 2,200 pounds of product in it. And I measure everything by that metric ton. That's a unit of measure for me that that is basically only divisible down to the kilogram or to the pound level, but I don't really care below that. And I look at that and I say, okay, well, I have to take all, you know, this product and everything here, but it doesn't matter where it was made or how it was made or whatever. But once it's in that bag, it has a set of uniform characteristics that I can manage. I can control it. I can ship it. um, I can track it. And so data normalization is taking all of those disparate elements that define the characteristics of that bag of product. And getting it to a point where I say, okay, I will agree with myself and everybody else in this commercial transaction that this particular tote or super sack of product has these uniform characteristics that we all agree upon uh, from an information standpoint. But human beings are no different than a 2,200 pound super sack of 
whatever it may be, fertilizer, amino acids, whatever. That is, that that's the recognition and the breakthrough that I think a lot of people need to have about their their dating line and their and the way they vote and the way they act and and in a practical way. I mean, what you just explained in plain English, and I've never heard it this way before, and I think it's brilliant. Is you just explained why the Republican culture attempt is disingenuous and perpetually going to lose. It is, it is data normalized that this is the package on the right. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've been railing against. I've been railing against the data normalization that is a disingenuous reflection of truly the Republican voter, the average American. And they get us in these, and it's embarrassing because smart people get caught in this trap and we have to and we have to rail against it, but it's because at some high level, it's been decided that this is the culture and these are the people who run it. And we've data normalized that this is the right. Like this, this storyline, that is what I attack is to try and invert this over time. Um, it won't happen in my lifetime, but maybe I'm the guy who, who plants the seeds in enough people's minds that they realize that's, that's what we have to do is we have to seesaw this, this whole game because, uh, I mean, just thank you for saying that. The data normalization mm-hmm. of the characteristics that represent the right is a business plan being executed. That's exactly. I mean, it is a business plan, right? So, my my preoccupation with data normalization, which is to get to quantify any specific thing by these fifteen sets of characteristics or whatever it may be, that can be monitored, measured and manipulated i just gave you alliteration all right you're welcome yeah uh, monitor measured and manipulated i just came up with that i'm actually going to use that in my job tomorrow all uh, right give me a smarty that's right <laughs> you can you can have a sweet tart um but but to to the extent that we take a look at that and we think okay the the way in which opinions are harnessed and codified and quantified as being x or y right means we can quantify and thus manipulate on a predictable basis that individual or that subset of people to act in a certain way is the magic of of it's not the magic but it is the man behind the curtain of what the right does a little bit more than the left i think and and, and here's why i say that a lot of the progressive left has built itself upon here's the deal these are the very wide parameters under which we've determined the culture will operate politics will operate and um, the economy will operate as long as you fall within that and don't challenge and try to incorporate anything from outside that very wide framework uh, we're cool right you, you, you can do these really despicable terrible things but as long as you say the right things and do the right things, you're part of the team um, and will defend you and protect you and the system will defend and protect you, which is really important to understand. Uh, as long as you don't like kind of go outside the scope, you're good um, because it's all in pursuit of winning. It's all in pursuit of power. It's all in pursuit of, in some ways, a pragmatic recognition of this is the world we've created. Don't you dare upset that apple cart. But within that, you're good. On the right, we are very ideologically driven in, in some ways, and then other parts of the right are very emotionally driven. And this is where I diverge with a lot of people on the right who are like, you know, we're about facts, we're about the Constitution, we're about this. No, no, we're, we're all 
at some level, we're all like animals, right? We're all driven by emotions and needs and wants and things like that. It's okay because we're humans. And that's, that's the beautiful thing about what makes us humans in my view. Um, and to me, that's the beauty of the constitution and why when I see someone like Steve Bannon, who is like teeing up in my view, at least people may disagree with me again, that's cool. But in my view is teeing up a cultural preference for autocracy for a strong man, for mm-hmm. someone to come along and say, look, human beings are fundamentally flawed. And we have, even under the constitution of the United States, we have no way of really resolving these differences because we're all just like these amoral, broken, progressive, transgressive pieces of crap. Uh, and therefore we just need this brief period of time where we need like a strong man to come along and like, reset us to the constitution. That's all bullshit, man. Like, because yeah. once you step outside that framework and you say, okay, I'm a little bit pregnant with the idea that strong man politics is okay. Um, it's not okay. And it's not okay when it's Trump. It's not okay when it's George Bush. It's not okay when it's Reagan from the right. It's not okay when it's uh, Franklin Roosevelt. It's not okay when it's Harry Truman. And it's not okay when it's Bill Clinton or Barack Obama doing it from the left. Because at the end of the day, no matter what happens, whether it's left or whether it's right, you have a divergence from the core ethos of the Constitution, which is that individuals making decisions in their own best interest, but also in a way that reconciles it with the best interests and the needs and wants and decisions of other Americans is the best way to get along. That's the way it should be done. It should be difficult to change constitutional law, but once it's done, at least you know that it was done under a framework of, free people making free decisions freely. And that's why we have the amendments. The founding fathers were not so enlightened when it came to matters of race. I don't hold that against them in the sense, and I need to be very clear that this is non-severable from what I just said. There were cultural norms of the day that as those cultural norms shifted and we began to understand that viewing viewing slaves or indentured servants of which there are many Scotch and Irish people who are indentured servants that were effectively slaves. Um, the, the view of the gentrified white English descendant class as the only type of citizen who matters that shifted, but the founding fathers are smart enough to know like, Hey, maybe what we think and feel uh, is not the way uh, people a hundred years from now will think and feel. And so they provided a mechanism to modify the constitution to extend the rights and privileges of the original constitution as cultural circumstances changed, but they made it difficult to change because they knew the culture, the culture needs to be so overwhelmingly in favor of a certain thing or idea that it really is the ethical and moral thing to do to change that because 95% of people recognize like, Hey man, like this isn't right. This is wrong. We can't do this. And so it needs to be easy to change and that not easy to change that, but it needs, there needs to be a mechanism to account for the fact that things change and they do where I think we've really gotten off track is in two ways. One, the first was judicial activism. Uh, the Marbury case, I think was the first, it was what sort of set the precedent of, you know what, man, the courts have the right to say what the hell the constitution means. Well, no, they don't. The constitution says what the constitution says. And if we want to change the plain meaning of the words we use in the constitution, there is an amendment process for it, which we've utilized 25 times first time with the first 10 bill of rights. And then 14 times subsequent to that. I think, I think we've had 25 amendments by now. 
So we have a process to change. As the times update, we're good to go. Where things have gone really wrong, in my view, I'm on my soapbox, Mike. I apologize. No, um, no, it's fascinating, and I, and I, <laughs> I think anybody listening is going to be really thankful to have tuned into this. Where I think I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> I hope you're right. Um, where, where I think things have gone wrong, though, is where we've said, okay, well, the courts have determined what's right and wrong, and then we said not only the courts but culture, and that was when when we when we begin to give the right of of political power and legal structure to the whims of the populace, where fifty point one percent, and that is a number that is easily moved to madness. There's a whole body of economic and socioeconomic and political literature. You know, the first book which came out, God, I can't even remember two hundred years ago, you know, Tulip Mania and the Roots of Human Madness or something like that. But when we talk about like Tulip Mania and stuff, that was really the first understanding that like human beings can be can be at scale manipulated into really significant cultural and political and economic movements and change with a few specific events. Hitler utilized it. Here we go with Godwin's law, but Hitler utilized it very effectively with the Reichstag fire, um, the creation of perception of evil and wrongdoing that then leads to the manipulation of humans that then leads to a specific outcome. It's a Hegelian dialectic, a problem, reaction, solution. And the, the cultural right understands that and employs it in an even more insidious and less obvious way. A man who ended up becoming a spree killer in Denver is as much part and parcel of that as uh, the utilization of Caitlyn Jenner as a way to try to shift uh, cultural norms or subvert cultural norms against themselves is uh, much a perception of taking a, a man who is a, a businessman and an entertainer prior to being a politician and him becoming the president of the United States, the most powerful man in the world. Donald Trump, for as much as he is his own man, and he is his own man in a great number of ways, and I firmly believe that, but he was surrounded by people who utilized his own instincts against him in some really profoundly unsettling and difficult ways. Well, it's the same thing I said that happened to Breitbart. Uh, anybody right. who's going to anybody who's going to break the mold and go out and do something different is going to be violently attacked uh, significantly from places that they don't even understand or see coming. I really do feel that it's spiritual warfare, and and I believe it. And I think that in order to even win that game you have to be so small-minded that it's you can't want anything that anybody's offering but i want to pull something back because you know you're brilliant and there's a point that we can actually take from what you're saying and 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 really make something out of it which is you kept saying over and over that you know our, we have a mechanism for change mm-hmm. now i'm a storyteller i look at things from the big picture at all times and i've had lots of political arguments over the years and you know i found myself constantly saying to people you know, hey, wait a minute, you know, change happens very slowly in America for a reason. Mm-hmm. That's the way our system is set up. It's set up to gradually it change. It should change slowly, right? Right. Now, now everything you're describing, the the dramatization of the extremes, the, cultivisa- the cult, uh, cultivation of uh, ideological uh, 
purity where it's so ridiculous that it's all the way down to how are you living your life? I mean, I'm, I'm a man's man or I'm a total fag, like whatever it is, you have to be an extreme. And all that does is buys them time to make those changes happen without us knowing. That's a big part of it. And I, I think, Mike, the really interesting thing here is when I, when I look at the people that I'm most closely aligned to from a culture and a political standpoint, and this is a comment I've made to people privately offline. I look at a guy like Matt Stoller, right? And Matt Stoller was someone who a few years ago, I would have looked at and been like, I have nothing in common with this dude at all. Right. Um, as a journalist, as a person, as a political fellow traveler in any way, shape, form or fashion, Matt Stoller and I wouldn't agree, but I'll tell you this. I have, more respect for Matt Stoller than I do 99.99% of my quote unquote fellow travelers on the right. And the reason for that is this, is that where he and I align, we disagree in a lot of ways, but where he and I align, and this is really important to me, is that we both hate monopolies. We both hate mm -hmm. oligopolies and cartels because what we recognize in our own ways and through our own cultural and sociopolitical frameworks that we have arrived at is that the ability of the machine to interact with itself in such a way that it ends up crushing everybody below it is antithetical to American values. Um, and so you and I can disagree on abortion. We can disagree on yeah. marriage. We can disagree on uh, 50,000 fronts. But the way in which we most agree and the way in which is most important to me is that the way in which humans meet their needs, their ability to fuel their cars and have electricity in their homes and keep the internet on and eat their food and take care of their families on those fronts. We are aligned in the fact that the system wants to take that away from us. And, and so I look at Matt Stoller and then I look at a guy like Tom McDonald, you know, Tom McDonald is possibly the world's most heavily tattooed individual. Uh, I have no tattoos. I have no piercings. I have no identifiable markings whatsoever. So I'm like from a physical characteristic standpoint, the furthest away from a guy like Tom McDonald I could possibly be. Hell, I'm bald, and the dude's got like dreads, you know, dreads and whatever. I was just, about, I was just about to tell everyone that you had a beautiful <laughs> yeah. head of hair. I have a beautiful <laughs> head of hair that if I were to let it grow for 25 years and put hair plugs in, it would look fantastic. Uh, one might say presidential, um, but uh, <laughs> but but I look at a guy like Tom McDonald. And I look at some of the things he says, and I'm like, you know what, man? Like I share politics with him, but also with a guy like Matt Stoller. And then I think about you and I think about someone who in so many ways is, uh, in my view, a bit, icon you know, a bit of an iconoclast, uh, or at least will be recognized at some point that way. But even now someone who uh, in a lot of ways defies the expectations of what the quote unquote cultural right should be. And then I look at someone and, and, you know, I've had conversations about her, but like cake in a crisis, you know, uh, mm -hmm. on Twitter, who we've talked about and who, um, you've platformed on here and, and rightfully so because she's a really brilliant individual with a lot of interesting things to say, but we're four very different people. You know, Matt Stoller is this just like really incredible journalist who just really hates monopolies and cartels. You've got Tom McDonald, who's a total cultural warrior from a music side and a lot of other ways. You've got yourself who has done some really amazing work and, and, you know, Tigerland is one that, that people I think are familiar with. Um, where you had a lot of amazing things to say about war long before we ever, when I, 
when I look at what the right, and I'll just say this as a divergent view, when I look at what you had to say in Tigerland, what, what year did that movie come out? By the way, 2000, 2001? The year 2000, but it is about Vietnam, so let's just make that clear. But it is about Vietnam, but at the same time, you were looking backwards at a time frame of Vietnam and diagnosed in that movie a lot of things that we didn't realize until now in right. 2020, 2021, 2022, about the nature of war and the nature of how war affects a country and the war affects an individual and the war affects people within a specific group. And so I looked and back how the, and how the culture cultivates people to that's be exactly warriors. exactly right. And, and so uh, I look at what insane warriors too. That's right. And, and, and so I look at that and I think about what you did with, Tigerland and the work that you did with Breitbart. And then I look at what Matt Stoller's doing in a completely different domain and Tom McDonald and someone like, you know, someone like Cake in a Crisis who has been through this really individualized trauma and, and her story is hers to tell. And it's not for me to tell, but the, the, the fact that a guy like Lyndon McLeod preyed on her and targeted her as a result of things she had been through, but also as a result of her genius and her gifts as a way to try to subvert her and make her a bit of a, a feminine Trojan horse into the artistic and into the right wing world. I mean, that was a pure manipulation operation, right? It was an influence op to, and, and when she said no, when she saw what was going on and he turned against her and turned a lot of, you know, right wing manuscript Twitter against her, all of that, everything that happened to you, the attacks that Tom McDonald has gotten, the attacks that Matt Stoller has gotten, the attacks that Cake in a Crisis has gotten. When I, when I look at all four very different people, artists, you know, people that have a very strong sense of like uh, facts and what's important in the culture, you take four very divergent personalities and lives and situations, and you say, what's the common thread through all of this? And the common thread is this, is that every single one of you recognizes that elevation and recognition of the idea that the individual, protecting the individual, protecting that person's sovereignty to make choices that benefit themselves, but in an ethical framework that interacts very appropriately with the larger will of other individuals acting in concert, the ability to balance those two things is the most important thing. You know, it's... You know, I, I believe uh, you're Catholic, correct? Am I saying? Yes, I am. Okay, so yeah. you're Catholic. So I'm I'm Protestant, and actually, still- <laughs> I'm I'm just a practicing Catholic. I'm not very good at it. That's that's right. Well, I'm a practicing Christian, but uh, I'm out of practice. I'll be very honest with you about that. Um, and I I've just, and I I've just always wanted to use that joke because it was told to me so many times. Repeat that joke and cut my previous comment so that yours stands alone, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> the but. but when I look at that and I think, but, but you and I, despite me being somewhat of a Protestant, you being a Catholic, we come out of, for a time, a very uniform theosoph- you know, theosophical and intellectual tradition, and then that diverged pretty strongly right around the time of Martin Luther. Um, but you and I do come from a common foundation of that. You know, When Jesus talked about, the, so as you have done to the least of me, you have done unto me. And what he's talking about there is, is that the most helpless and defenseless and unable to really understand the world around them individual, it could be a child, it could be someone who's got uh, maybe some mental deficiencies, it could be someone who was raised in an environment where maybe the full cultural context wasn't available or education or whatever it may be, 
whoever these individuals are, it's not that they're disadvantaged. It's not that they're less than us. It's that they are different. And it's that they, they matter as much or even more than people who were born with the ability to see beyond or people who were born with certain advantages to understand. And so it is incumbent upon all of us to work together to say, you know what, where I'm weak, you're strong, where you're weak, I'm strong. And we try to look out for one another in a way that supports the individual, the, the beautiful individuality of that person. And that's where I think Christianity gets it right. That's where I think Judaism gets it right. That's where I think Islam gets it right. In a lot of ways is that we are, we are born not as cogs in a machine, but we are who we are because we were born that way and and that is beautiful and it's sovereign it belongs to us and us alone and any violation of that is is evil it is the heart of evil and when i see this mimetic warfare being waged when i see cultural warfare being waged when i see this these machinations and we're going to manipulate we're going to this segment of people are more responsive to the black pill. And so we're going to like really make these people feel like outcasts and manipulate their behavior in a way that generates a prescribed outcome. And then these people feel this way and we're going to do that to them. And, and, and we're going to try to assemble a winning political coalition around the fucking misery of Mm -hmm. human beings and the grievances and all the ways in which the world has done them wrong. That is a culture that I cannot and will not ever support or participate in. Of course not. It's 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 heading. It's a race to the bottom. It is. It's and, it's not. It's not doing anyone any good. And you know when you talk about cake and uh, I I think her art is fantastic, but I realize that uh, I'm in a fortunate position that I can actually maybe attempt to bring more allies online somehow. That's how I would describe it. Sure, is inspire people to to reach for it because. All of the, the, you know, the, the guy we started talking about, the jackass who murdered people that all these folks thought was a cool dude and worship that whole manosphere. I look at my car, that whole dick measuring contest mm-hmm. is one big distraction from the fellowship even occurring. And, 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 the fellow, and the fellowship is necessary because America is a fellowship of neighbors. That's right. And, and we all have wildly different opinions. And and the one opinion that we're not allowed to coalesce around is the one that matters most, which is the, the machine will chew you up and spit you out and doesn't care who you are. And so these folks, I'm going to ask you again, because I, I believe I drew a line. I figured it out after Trump uh, was removed from office. Like he's there's other people in charge of our government. It's not the president of the United States. Uh, that was the moment that I realized this game is. I thought I was playing a fair game that there was a back and forth, you know, there was a gentleman's game going on where it's a little political jousting and you guys got eight years and we got eight years and you guys got eight years and we got eight years, but the culture kept just moving in the wrong direction and the power was changing hands less and less and less and less. And so I just realized this is all one big charade to prevent us from Mm -hmm. getting to this moment where we accept that everybody's different. You know, the thing they preach they then deploy the the soldiers to make sure that we never follow through with it. That's right. And uh, you know that's the real evil of what's of what's going on here, and that's that's why we have to put an end to this uh, cottage industry of disrupting American unity. It mm-hmm. is the most. It's more dangerous than drugs. It's more dangerous than a foreign army. 
Mm-hmm. It's the thing that is going to make our country a thing of the past. It is. And, and I'll tell you this, Mike, I, um, someone like you or someone like cake who you guys create in your different ways, you create these really, and by the way, I'm looking forward to reading your, your book, the, the, uh, Oh, Omim. Am I saying Omim, that? Right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that story. I think that's what little you've shared with me to this point, I think is, is really, exciting and interesting and, and a I'm proud of it. Uh, I'm proud you, of it. You, you I'm not a science fiction. I'm not a science fiction writer who overly describes the way the microchips and the motherboards make the spaceship operate. This is a story about how does the human spirit fit into the universe? And I think I took a great metaphor for, for arguing for life essentially in the universe and how it exists against all odds. And, but here's the thing. I mean, and it's, it's so funny. There's like the, the, God, there was a book that was written years ago and it's the 21 laws of magic or something like that. And, and what's interesting about it. And a lot of people, a lot of, you know, particularly my fellow travelers on the Christian right would look at it and say, you know, this, this whole uh, magic thing, boy, that's really satanic. That's really evil. And I look at it and I'm like, you know what though? Like if, if you, if you walk it all the way back and I forget who said it, but um, and it was probably Carl Sagan or somebody like that. Probably somebody who was an atheist and thought science was everything. But I look at it as as someone who uh, has not always behaved as such, but is a God fearing individual and, and believes that there is a higher power um, that that is organizing and sort of managing a lot of this chaos that we freely act within as as creatures of free will. Um, that that magic is science we simply don't understand yet and i'm paraphrasing of course right but like 500 years ago it was heresy for galileo to say that the earth in fact revolves around the sun like the heliocentric model of the universe was literal heresy that people could be killed for right and then we well it was the same control it was the same control over the population that's exactly what i know where you're going with this i mean that's we we came to understand though in time that that was the right way yeah and so when I look at what you're doing with OMIM, when I look at what Matt Stoller is doing with his um, uh, righteous, in my view, crusade against the domination and manipulation of industries that human beings depend upon, when I look at what Cake is doing with the fact that, that she is someone who's fighting a battle that in my way, like in my mindset, is like very new to humanity which is the abuse and manipulation of someone by digital proxy right you have the abuse and manipulation that that individuals and many many more like her endure of um sociopathic family members or significant others or whatever it may be who manipulate the emotional financial physical control but then you also have the added element of we're surrounded by devices that record every move we make we are surrounded by activity-based intelligence and so it's very easy to manipulate and abuse people in very pervasive ways that the law has not yet wrestled with or come to understand which adds a whole new layer of people being like am i crazy for thinking that so-and-so is watching me right now am i crazy for thinking that my husband is recording me and doing these horrible things with that data we've reached a level of inhumane digitalism i don't even think that's a word but inhumane digitalism We've elf on the shelf ourselves to death. We we absolutely have. I mean, that's what really what happened. 
the dehumanization of people by technology is part of what OMIM is about. That's right. Um, and when I look at, when be, I look at be, what Sunstein and Thayer wrote and Nudge, which was, well, yeah, just behavioral psychology, right? Let's yeah. just, and, and it's no accident that Sunstein, Cass Sunstein, became a senior advisor inside the Obama administration. Like, how do we manipulate human psychology for beneficent ends? How do we get people to default to, well, they don't need to have informed or truly informed consent about what happens to their bodies when they die. Let's just make the default that they're organ donors because it's a social good. That is no different than Steve Bannon saying, you know what, man, I think that this traditionalism, this let's have an authoritarian strongman for a time, sort of look out for the best interest of the people, maybe some sort of constitutionalist monarchy, and then let's build a framework of cultural manipulation around that. Let's weaponize the Lyndon McLeods of the world. Let's weaponize the Jack Posobiec and Mike Cernoviches of the world. And let's take all these different elements of grievance and fear that people have under this and then turn that into a political action machine. That shit to me is just as evil and wrong as Hitler setting the Reichstag on fire as a way of creating cultural schism to bring himself to power and to bring the Nazi party to power. And I'm not saying that these individuals are Nazis or that the Nazis are not as bad or whatever. Like it's, it's because people are going to make those silly projections and comparisons. No, I hear you loud and clear. But it is all evil and there's no distinguishing between evil. I hear you loud and clear and anyone that dares to try and pathetically tie those things together is just being an asshole because that's not what you said. And it's not what you're saying. What you're saying is the manipulation of your fellow humans is the same trick by what degree is a matter of history and time and place. But the result is always the same. The loss of, of liberty from us yes. and the tyranny increases. And we're at a point now where it's been turned into popcorn theater. Like the devil could not be more happy where everybody goes home to tune into the show of how much do I hate my neighbor? It's the saddest time to be an American for this very reason. And we really truly need to rise up and do something about it. And rising up starts with telling these folks that, that sow this bullshit intentionally so that this can, this end goal can be met. We really have to tell them to just go away. And we do that by ignoring them. Because their whole business model depends on us reacting to their synthesis. If I'm saying correctly, uh, you know, to what you said, it's just that reaction that they're generating fuels all that data manipulation that gets them to that finish line. And that finish line is not a place anyone with children should want their country to be at. And, I, you know, I want to wrap up our conversation mm -hmm. because we've been on for an hour and a half. And I like to keep the show to the point where people, you know, don't have to spend two, you know, a movie's amount of time hearing us go off. Cause I know we could talk forever about, you know, a whole host of subjects, but I wanted to keep this really focused on this cultural moment we're at. And I think it's important for listeners to take away that know you and that have gotten to know me and my small capacity on Twitter, that being reasonable, being inconsistent, being all over the map are qualities that will protect us all now. It has nothing to do with proving what you really believe so that you can show what team you're on and raise your hand up in the big auditorium and identify as one of theirs. It's about being undiscoverable now. And you do that by being all over the place. But the one place you refuse to go 
is to that place where you feed the machine your fellow Americans so they can eventually eat you. That's the place where none of us can go. We can't be allowed to do that to each other anymore. It is the individual. It is sovereignty and protection and love of your fellow neighbor, of your fellow man, and of that individual. And I have forgotten that, and I've abandoned that so many times in my life, and it's never gone well for me. What you're describing is the real antidote to the entire mess, which is for us to all have situational awareness. That's right. We don't have any situational awareness of the plot against the American people. We think it's what we're told by these very loud mouths who are backed by corporate on one side, backed by political corporate on the other side. You know, when you disc- when you talk about the culture of the right, there is no culture of the right. There's only politics. That's, That's the right. culture of the right. There's no right-wing film festival I can go to that doesn't have some absurd, over-the-top, you know, uh, like, just show me a, a still of the American flag for two hours. Like, nobody on the right knows how to do art. Nobody knows how to tell a story about the human struggle and how liberty is the thing that give someone hope to make it through a hard time Mm -hmm. like we've we've lost all that but boy do we know how to react do we know how to one up the uh, the left do we know how to echo their model do we know how to take their rope and hang ourselves with it well i say fuck that those days are over Mm -hmm. uh and and it's really the only way that these people can have power over any of us is a way that is imaginary because they'll never have the power over us because they need you to want what they have that's right that's that's the key. So the manipulation is I'll give you access, better life. You know, there's some people they would like to have that $5,000 extra for the year. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be something so small, whatever it is, but it's the promise. It's the it's the digital hand job that never leads anywhere. I'm going to get I'm going to make something happen for you. It's just one big card game leading you into the mouse trap and the mm-hmm. more people are aware of it and accept it accept that that's what it is start playing your hand for yourself you'll find that that this thing is is over with before you know it um i don't really care what direction the political parties say they're going in i'm only concerned right now with the direction i have with the inertia the feeling that i have with my fellow americans that's right and the more unity the more unity for us the worse for the system the more unity for the system the worst for us and that's where we're at right now so i want to thank you for um for coming on tonight and sharing your knowledge and explaining things in a way that is at a high level and i hope that i you know could interject here and there and and bring it down to my uneducated level which ah, is more stop. just <laughs> no no really just just trying to get things in a simple way just to understand them in a simple way because i do think the devil is in the details and it's, right. it's so simple you know what does Steve Bannon want? There's all these layers of things. It's just power and money. It's just so he can have more than you. Period. That's all it is. That's right. It's not as evil as it sounds. It's diabolical. You know, the evil part is the thing that you described, which is the intersection that says, I'm going to snuff out the other guy so that I can succeed. And that's not how our country was built. That's not how the fabric of our nation operates. And that's not how we should treat each other. So... Uh, I think the team is just coming together, the team of reality. Right. And I, I don't I don't think that uh, it's too far-fetched for me to, to say, and this is will make people laugh, but I will single-handedly end this whole entire industry of right-wing punditry unless it changes itself and turns into right-wing artistry. That's when I've won the game. That's my goal. 
I don't care what these people do. They should go and work for the left and work for CNN because that's really who they are. There's a half-wit in a red hat And he says the earth is flat And he says that the news is fake I can't take these con, con, con Comic conspiracies, con, con, con Comment lies, con, con, con Conspiracies Harmless, like a monkey with a gun But now there's